Mark chapter 14, we'll read a little bit more together, verses 1 through 11, and talk about Jesus, the Passover lamb. Mark 14, beginning in verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Christ by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. And given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world... What she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he, Judas, that is, sought an opportunity to betray him. Father, we pray your blessings on your word. We've read much of it. And now I pray that you would bless the preaching of it. And edify the church through it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we just finished, thankfully, the Olivet Discourse, of course, in Mark 13, where Jesus was answering the disciples' questions regarding the destruction of the temple, um, his coming in the clouds of glory, and the signs that would accompany all of that. And so from that teaching of triumph and exaltation, Mark 14 sort of shifts into a darker scene, foreshadowing suffering, betrayal. And of course, we will get to that by the end of this chapter. This is the longest chapter in Mark's gospel, probably by far, and focuses on what's known as the passion of the Christ. And the word passion is from a Latin word which means suffering. So when we speak of the suffering of Christ, the passion of Christ, that's what we mean, his suffering, his soul and body. We speak of his active and passive obedience, right? His active obedience where he perfectly obeyed the law of God. And his passive obedience is not where he became silent, but his passive obedience was his suffering obedience. And of course it was, as Mark counts for us, two days prior to the most important Old Testament feast and celebration of the Passover, which Michael just read for us, that entire account. And it's hard not to read that now, knowing the New Testament, and not see all the fulfillment in it. Even the Passover lamb, the bones couldn't be broken. You know, it's just, it's beautiful language and beautiful um, foreshadowing for us. This feast, of course commemorates that deliverance, the great deliverance of God's people from the bondage in Egypt and the protection of them from the death angel or 
the destroyer who killed Egyptian, all the Egyptian firstborn. And as we saw, God instructed his people to smear the blood over the doorposts and the destroyer would pass over any house marked by the blood and escape judgment. And of course, again, so difficult not to see all the fulfillment, even the things we sang about this morning, the blood of Christ and how ultimately it is the reason God passes over our sin and we will miss the judgment that we were doomed for because Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain for us in our place. Now this annual event, by the time Jesus comes along, brought thousands and thousands of people extra people into Jerusalem. We talked about this in Mark 13, looking at all of the discourse and uh, all that was about to take place uh, several years down the road and the destruction of Jerusalem. All these people are, extra people are there. And there's a lot of anticipation and excitement. But for Jesus, there must have been a lot of agony in his soul, knowing what was coming. And it's obviously no coincidence that the Passover was at hand when the one who Paul says is our Passover, Christ, is about to be crucified and suffer and die for his people that God's judgment might pass over. And all this is about to take place. And Mark says it's at this point that the chief priests and the scribes are really seeking how to arrest and kill Jesus. This is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, the leaders, the the religious leaders of Israel, they're sort of plotting together with scribes and priests and everybody they can find, anybody they can find. It's not long after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead that this is taking place and these same leaders are some of the ones who had plotted to kill Lazarus after Jesus had raised him from the dead. Now they're getting together another brilliant plan. We're going to kill Jesus, even though we know how that's going to turn out. It's part of God's plan. But in the middle of all this and this darkness, and it is a sort of a dark chapter, even though we can look uh, at it on this side and we see this is a glorious thing, but it is a lot of wickedness, um, evil men, following their heart's desires, plotting the murder of the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, as, as the preachers in Acts will point out. You murdered him. And all this is taking place. But right in the middle of all this evil, the leaders desiring to find somebody, we'll pay for the arrest of Christ. They're looking for a way to catch him and murder him, but not while the people are there. There's too many people in town. Right in the middle of that, Mark sandwiches this great story that seems to be sort of out of place, but it's not in the broader narrative of chapter 14. That while Jesus is at Bethany in the house of this leper, Simon, who's obviously a former leper, or he wouldn't be hosting a party that people would attend, his leprosy has been healed some way. This woman who John identifies for us as Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, she breaks into the men's conversation, dinner conversation, which was very um, much not to be done in this culture, but other than to serve the food, the women were not to break in and 
the middle of men's meetings, but this lady does so. And she breaks this costly bottle of costly perfume on his head, the head of Jesus, to anoint him. And John says she put it on his feet and wiped them with her hair. And a lot of people say, well, see, there's a contradiction in the Bible. One says she put it on his head. One says she put it on his feet. But she was anointing him for burial. And some commentator point out it's almost as if she gave him a bath in the stuff. She covered all of him. It's not a contradiction. And amazingly, in verse 4, some were indignant about this. Why was it wasted? Why waste this costly ointment? Matthew says it was the disciples that were disputing this, all of them. But John says specifically Judas, of course, who would betray Christ before we're out of this chapter because he was the money handler, John says, and he was very greedy. He didn't really care for the poor, but John says he cared about the money because, in fact, he takes some of it for himself from time to time. So if you want to know how some things never change, what was really causing the greatest problem here and what uh, really irked the heart of the one who would deceive Christ and betray him was money and the love of it. He could endure a lot of things, but he couldn't endure this waste of what he saw was wasteful. And they didn't really care about the poor, as we obviously can see. They were just concerned about this costly stuff, what they saw as being wasted. But Jesus says, leave her alone because she's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, it's like the disciples didn't even hear that. Of course, they really couldn't still quite grasp all that was about to take place. But in the midst of all this ugliness, and all this greed and betrayal and even virtue signaling of the disciples pretending this one woman did a beautiful thing. She anointed Christ's body for burial. He will not receive another anointing, remember. He would be resurrected before they could come and do anything to his body. If you remember later on, if you're reading the gospel accounts, the women ran to the tomb the third day to finish anointing him, but he was not there. It's already been done. Jesus says she's done what she could. It's the only thing she had, the most precious thing she could find. Very reminiscent of the widow's might we read about not too long ago, not too many chapters back. She gave everything she had, the most costly thing she had. I think this is an awesome, beautiful picture of the love of God that he puts in our hearts. That this woman wanted to do something, and the only thing she had, this costly bottle, this costly perfume, possibly been in her family for many, many years. It's the only thing she had that's worth anything, and that's what she gave to Christ. That's what she wanted to Remember him by. And then Christ makes this amazing, remarkable statement. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What a beautiful thought. 
We're doing that even this morning, right? 2,000 years later, we are telling about what this woman did for Christ. And then we go right back to Judas going to the priests in order that he might betray him to them. And finally, the priests, the chief priests, the, the leaders, the council, they had what they needed. They had a betrayer, and that's what they've been looking for. One that would know his whereabouts so they could catch him away from all the crowds of people. And they could finally have him arrested and tried. It's an amazing little story sandwiched in between this bigger, broader narrative. So what do we take from this, just this little section of Scripture? I think just this. It's good to be reminded of the historical beauty of God's providence. The historical beauty of God's providence. These aren't just cool stories. And again, that's why I wanted to read that entire narrative from Genesis, I mean Exodus 12. These are all part of what we call historical redemptive narrative. This is the Bible. It is a historical redemptive narrative. History is the account of God's decrees coming to pass. History is a marvelous canvas on which the Lord has painted his plan of redemption, and we get to read it in the scriptures. That old adage is true. History really is his story. It is the story of God. Things don't just happen. The people of God didn't just happen to go into bondage in Egypt. That was part of God's plan. He even prophesied that would happen, and it did. The bondage had a purpose. Pharaoh had a purpose. God hardening Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardening himself, all had a purpose. And that same picture is painted over and over, is it not? Humanity getting into trouble. Humanity in our sin, finding ourselves in dire straits, but God's plan of redemption unfolding over and over. God glorifying himself in every aspect of human history. The bad parts, the pharaohs, the mundane parts, the slaying of lambs, the baking of bread, the smearing of blood on a doorpost, all painting for us the plan of God to redeem a people for himself. Humans thinking they're doing something, bettering themselves. Groups like the Sanhedrin thinking they're going to get ahead. The ruling class of humanity throughout all history knowing what's best, selfishly setting themselves up for what they see as success, all the while playing the part they were designed for. The Judases of the world, little selfish humans looking out for no one but themselves, using position to get ahead, selling out whoever is necessary to get ahead, stealing, robbing, even killing to satisfy a never-ending hunger and lust of greed and want, all the while doing exactly what they were divinely purposed to do in God's plan of redemption. Now, sometimes that's hard to grasp hold of because people say, well, Judas had a choice. Well, yeah, he did, but he chose exactly according to his heart. And Jesus even said he was a devil. He did exactly what he was put here to do. Our, our confession puts it so well. This idea of God 
and his, histor his historical redemptive narrative, this idea of God's decrees coming to pass. In chapter 5 of our confession, it starts this way. God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible knowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. It reminds me of what R.C. Sproul used to say. There's not even one rogue molecule in all the universe. God is in control of it all. And if God has used every Pharaoh type and every Nebuchadnezzar and every Judas and every little lamb and every incident that's ever taken place in this world for his glory and the redemption of his people, I think it's good for us to be reminded that he's doing the same thing today doing the same thing in your life and in mine in this church we look around and there's a lot of wickedness and there are things that seem to be spiraling out of control and we're worried about this and that there's an election coming up this year again next year and we'll be worried about that but all these things god is just painting on that canvas of redemptive narrative and it's all going to come to pass the way he planned it it will all take place your life will be as it's planned we ought to fight against evil. We ought to fight against wickedness. We can't ignore it. We need to be aware of it. We preach the gospel. But sometimes just stop and look in the midst of all this ugliness and wickedness for those little moments of alabaster flasks being broken and poured out. Those moments where Christ is being revered and exalted where he's bringing glory to himself. Even through something that seems so insignificant as this, right? How could this be important? This random, we know she's not extremely random. We know who she is. She plays a part in the, the narrative. But really, sort of just a woman of little significance who runs into the middle of this party and pours out this expensive ointment to the head and body and feet of the Lord because he had to be anointed. In fact, there's a, a psalm, I think it's Psalm 41, that sort of uh, prophesies this whole event of a friend selling out this poor man. And of course, many see that whole psalm pointing to this event in Christ. And in there, there's a, there is a passage about something being poured all on the top of them. It's interesting. Just Christ fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling the scriptures. I'm not sure how much Mary knew. Maybe it's just that she knew Jesus loved her and her family. She knew that Jesus had raised her brother from the dead. Maybe that's why she did it. She was doing it because she was supposed to do it. Maybe she knew something more. Maybe she knew that Christ really was worth everything that she ever had and could have. Maybe she realized that she could live without this family heirloom. 
and the most valuable earthly possessions she had, but she could not live knowing she had passed up the opportunity to anoint the Lord of glory. She couldn't cherish anything more than Christ. I think maybe that's the point. Not too many chapters back, we saw a rich young ruler who wasn't willing. He had plenty, everything, but wasn't willing to sell it and give it to the poor if God had commanded it of him. And here we see a poor lady who has nothing but one thing, and she's willing to sell the one thing. I think there's so many contrasts there. Somebody who has everything won't give it up for the one thing that matters. Somebody who had nothing but one little thing was willing to give that up to get what really matters, and that's Christ. So sad, and we all find ourselves in this position at times, loving the world and the things that we have more than we love the Lord. And it's a dilemma that we can find ourselves in. And Like Judas, we perhaps often think too much in temporal terms rather than eternal ones. It's a very important statement, too, that Jesus makes here that I think is applicable to us today. He says, as they're virtue signaling about, hey, we could have helped the poor, Jesus says this statement, hey, the poor you will always have with you, but you and I always have me. I don't think he said that because it's inappropriate to care for the poor, but I think like our study on Wednesday nights has pointed out to us, the works of God that he has created us to walk in come after the work of God in our life and making us believe. In other words, the worship of God comes first and a proper understanding of who God is comes first. And then after we know God and know who he is and we've been given his spirit, then we do the things that he's commanded of us. The good works come after the work of God in us. Much of what we have called or been told is the modern social justice movement or the social gospel movement. It sort of works in the opposite direction. It would say if you do the works and help the poor, then God will... Bring salvation to you. He will bless you because of that. Because after all, Jesus came, this movement would say, to fix culture and oppression and remove poverty. But Jesus makes this statement here, the poor you will always have with you. Now again, I don't think that's an excuse to not help the poor because we are commanded to do so in other places. Poor you always have. But me, you won't. He was trying to awaken this in his disciples, perhaps. This is the idea that humanity has always had ever since the garden. If I do something good, my deeds are good enough, then God will receive me. But we know that not to be true from studying the Bible. It's not according to our works, but because of mercy that he has saved us. And if any of you have never been brought from death to life and believed in Christ as your Savior, please understand it will only happen by grace through faith and not by your works. You can't do good. You can't get good enough. 
You can't wait until there's a time in your life where things are better. No, it's recognizing that no matter whether things are good or bad, your only hope of salvation is Christ. Your only hope, like the Israelites, was to have the blood put over your doorposts. Many of those people who were saved by that blood did nothing. Somebody had to dip in, uh, dip the hyssop into the blood and spread it, but so many of them did nothing. Yet they were saved because the blood was spread over their door. What a beautiful picture of salvation. We don't do anything. God has done it all. Well, we are told, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added unto us. Too often in the church today, worship and discipleship are not the main things. But I don't know how it can't be. It seems that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples the entire time of his ministry. He was trying to get them to stop looking at everything around them and look at him. And I think this is one of the things Mary points out to us here. Hey, of all the stuff that's going on, that which is most precious is right here. He is Christ. Check your motives. I think this is always important. If you're doing what you're doing, thinking that it will impress God, stop. Love God in Christ. Knowing that God doesn't need impressed. God's impressed with his son. I think Jesus is saying something like to these disciples around him and all that were watching this unfold. I'm not concerned that the world knows who you are, but I am concerned that my church knows who I am. That's what we need more than anything in the church is to know God. Worship Him. And then the goodness that He has going to produce, that He'll produce in us will come. And so we emphasize these things. We emphasize God in the Scriptures, in His work, through His Son. And we want to know that. And we want you to hear that. And we want to say it together and sing it together so that He will give us grace to worship Him. And we worship him when we do what we've been doing today, when we hear each other singing and we're encouraged and we're exhorted through these songs and through the reading of Scripture. And I pray that that will continue to be the case, and that God will continue to draw us closer to him. We learn that we are connected to him. We are unified in Christ and to each other. And that... Um, We'll continue to learn more about who he is, continue to desire to know about him. And from that, we go out and we do what God's called us to do. And when we fail at that, as we often will, we come back together and we encourage one another and we hold each other up until we're able to go out and do it again. In this world that is as dark as it was then in many ways, but there's also as much brightness as there was then because Christ and his church so, as we get ready to close the service and worship even more and receive more grace through the supper, 
I pray that you're encouraged that um, Christ is your Savior. And the blood of the Lamb of God, the real Passover Lamb, has been shed that you might live. Rejoice in that. And if you've never acknowledged that, do so. Look to Him. Be saved. Be baptized. And follow Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the beautiful stories that recount for us your plan of redemption unfolding. And I pray that you would encourage our hearts and continue to um, give us greater love for you and for your church and for the people outside as we go and live before them. And as opportunity abounds, that you would help us to speak the gospel that you will continue to bring more and more people into the kingdom and that more and more people will recognize the Passover lamb. The blood that he shed was for all who believe. And we praise you for that. Thank you for this church, for your people. Thank you for Christ, for what he's done for us. In his name we pray, amen.